Blog Talk Radio. <clears throat> Party. He's 
the chair of the LNC, the Libertarian National Committee, Nicholas Sarwark. Uh, he was re-elected chair in Orlando uh, for a second term, and he is also running for mayor of Phoenix, Arizona. So we're going to find out uh, all about that, and uh, let's bring um, Nick on right now. Good evening, Nick. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Wonderful, Nick. Good evening. Good evening. Okay. So we'll we'll jump right we'll jump right into things here, uh, and we'll just uh, get you to tell us a little bit about um, what you've been doing as chair in your second term. Uh, so in the second term, we took advantage of kind of the momentum we got in the first term. We had a very successful presidential race in 2016. We've added new staff members focused on development and fundraising and candidate recruitment and uh, full-time press secretary. So we're in a position to really take advantage of the progress we've made and go into the midterms really strong in order to put us in a great position for 2020. Excellent. That's great news. Uh, so um, you're running for mayor of Phoenix. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a funny story. Uh, our our junior senator, Jeff Flake, uh, got a little bit crosswise with the current president, and that ended up with uh, one of our Democratic congresswomen deciding that she was going to run for Senate, which then ended up with our current mayor deciding that he's going to quit before the end of his term in 2019 to run for her congressional seat. And that prompted me to throw my hat into the ring for the mayor's office. Um, since there'll be a special election coming up sometime this year, it's not entirely clear because uh, it doesn't actually get called until the current mayor steps down. And while he announced last October that he was going to quit, he has not quit yet. Uh, okay. So that that should be an interesting race, race to watch. Yeah, I think that's, so. Uh, that's nonpartisan there, isn't it? How's the, uh, how's the actual election process work? So municipal elections in Phoenix are nonpartisan elections. There are <coughs> two sitting Democratic council members who have announced that they will step down to run in the special election along with a Republican community college teacher. But the, um, the other thing about it is that if you don't get over 50% of the vote, there is a runoff election with the top two vote getters. So hmm. you don't have to be the top vote getter in the first round. You just have to be in the top two and then try and, you know, get to number one in the runoff. Interesting. Jungle primary. Interesting. Jungle primary. Pretty much <laughs> yeah. similar to the jungle primary. Um, but the whole nonpartisan nature of it, I think there's some strategic advantages to this race that I haven't seen in a lot of other races because the two incumbent council members who are running are both um, identify as and registered as Democrats. And Democrats tend to get about 60% of the vote in municipal elections in Phoenix. So if you figure you have two Democratic council members splitting 60% of the vote, 
that creates the opportunity to be at least that second place going into the runoff, um, even if you don't identify as a Democrat. Interesting. Wow. So what's the, um, what's the ballot access situation uh, like? How has that improved since 2016, and where are we at? Where are problem states as we move forward? Uh, I know that's one of the National Committee's big, big things yeah. that they spend a lot of their budget on. Nationally, we have better ballot access in um, Scott Lieberman, former National Committee member, likes to talk about December ballot access as being the really important metric. So it's not what you have in November of 16. It's what do you have in December of 16 after the election's over. And we have the best December ballot access that I think we've ever had in party history. Um, I think we had 38 states that we definitely had ballot access in following the November election. Um, we've added a few more. There are, it's unlikely that we'll get ballot access in Alabama for the midterms, although we should be back on for the presidential race. So we're looking at probably hitting 48 or 49 states in the 2018 midterm elections. Um, mm. One of the things that's hard as a national party when you're as uh, decentralized as Libertarian Party is, is if a state party isn't interested in pursuing a national project, there is very little uh, to nothing that the national committee can do to kind of push on that string. You just, you know, you do your best to help where people want help, and otherwise you uh, focus your efforts where they're wanted. Mm. So that, that leads into another thing I know you all have been working on, uh, which is, as kind of new, you've brought some new people on, which is is candidate support, um, and you know obviously you have candidate recruitment on the one hand, trying to get as many as you can, but we also have, and we have four state legislators currently who are libertarians. Um, are we looking at some of those races and and maybe some others to grow that number? So we're looking at retention closely, um, Senator Ebke in Nebraska at least representatives Finney and Dyer in New Hampshire. I think representative Stalkop has actually moved out of the district and so may not be running for reelection. Um, so retention's a big deal, but we're also looking at candidate support in, you know, more than 10 and less than 50 probably state or local level races across the country, places where we can have, significantly higher than normal impact and pick up seats that, um, you know, have the right sort of strategic dynamic where you have something not to use the Phoenix race as an, as an example, because it's not one that the committee's targeted, but you have some sort of similar strategic advantage where there's an opportunity for a libertarian to way outperform what is typical uh, results. So we have that going and, you know, this kind of goes back to something I've said for many years, which is the answer to do we run a few really qualified candidates or do we run a lot of candidates should be yes. Because if you run over 2,000 candidates around the country, you make it harder for our opponents to figure out which races that we're really targeting and putting a lot of resources into. Amen. Amen. And because the independent vote always wins the election we got to be build coalitions among the anti-too-bigs in order to win all these 2,000 races. And you're doing a fabulous job, Nick. Appreciate you. Well, thank you.
yeah, I um, we're gonna. I'm gonna ask you a question now that uh, has to do with your race in uh, Phoenix. Um, uh-huh. And uh, so, let's say you win the election, and you're the new yeah. mayor of Phoenix, and the governor of Arizona calls you on the phone and says, "Okay, uh, Mayor Sarwark, I want you to crack down on illegal immigration and uh, help ICE." Whenever they need it, what's your answer? Um, the probable answer is that immigration is a federal issue, and municipal governments aren't really tasked with immigration, and that the people of Phoenix would have elected me to, you know, fix the roads and have the water be clean and get the trash picked up on time and deal with our pension crisis, and that's not at the top of our list. You know, a lot of municipal government isn't so much about saying yes or no. You know, one of my problems with the current mayor in Phoenix, he has been very open about getting into fights with the governor, who's a Republican, or getting into fights with the president, who uh, is also apparently a Republican. (laughs) Rather than focusing, (laughs) yeah, rather than focusing on what's really important to the people of Phoenix. You know, we don't do any better in that city by getting into arguments but you can do things where you prioritize resources towards what's important. So, you know, one of my ideas as mayor would be to do something similar to what Denver did back before legalization in Colorado, where they made marijuana enforcement the lowest law enforcement priority. They didn't change any laws in the state of Colorado. They didn't make it not illegal anymore. They just said, you know, our police officers are going to focus on violent crime and property crime. And they're going to make busting people for weed a very low priority, not because we're trying to change the policy, but because, you know, this is what's important to the citizens of our city. And so that's kind of where I would go with, you know, if your governor wants to call up and say, we think immigration enforcement is real important for your city, I'd say respectfully, that's not what it seems like the people of Phoenix want. Good answer. That's an interesting perspective. That's the best perspective. That's the only perspective, you know. <laughs> Zero party. You know what Baton Rouge did this year? In the Metro Council in 2018, we reduced the uh, max fine for first offense possession to 20 bucks, second to 40 bucks, third to 60 bucks, fourth to 80 bucks. <laughs> third, third offense possession is a felony still by the state, but in Baton Rouge, it's all a misdemeanor. And so what you do is you you basically you tell these other law enforcement agencies that seem to think that that's an important priority, that they are more than welcome to spend their resources on it. Um, You know, we're just not we don't have time for that, Uh, which is kind of what Colorado did when we legalized marijuana in the state was, you know, it was still federally illegal. And if the FBI and the DEA have enough resources to come in and try and enforce the federal law, more power to them. They didn't, by the way. <laughs> and they yeah, they wouldn't be able to. <laughs> but, you know, what about, de- what about demilitarization in the local level? Because here's the problem. They're going to give you, the neocons will always give you great resources to enforce their bullshit laws. And so how do you deal with that as a candidate in, in your race when you don't say you know, we, we can't we don't we're not in favor of militarization of the police force because this is a way to pay off the purple wars and every other kind of dumb shit they want to do 
Well, how do you say that? What do you say to that, Nick? Well, that's that's where de-emphasizing marijuana enforcement, um, you know, and some of these victimless crime enforcement. If you de-emphasize that, then you improve the relationship between the police and the community that they serve. You know, and you're able to get away from this idea of, you know, terms that I wouldn't use of, of police and civilian. You know, we're all citizens of this country. We're all civilians. Nobody should be above anybody else. And we need to move off of that war footing and move towards a footing where police officers is, are seen as helpful and protectors rather than being seen as someone that you're frightened of or someone who you're afraid to talk to. Because that's or how an occupation is. force. Well, they that's how you solve real crime. Force. That's exactly right. right you saw, Jeff, well, you an occupation real force, yes. With cooperative witnesses, right? <clears throat> so part of the reason why the sanctuary city policies have been put in place is the idea that if somebody witnesses a violent crime, they see somebody get murdered or they see somebody get robbed, they should want to cooperate with the police to try and bring somebody to justice rather than be concerned that as soon as they talk to police, they'll be questioned about their immigration status and potentially lose their job and be deported. Hey, it's man. a matter of what's important to you. Is it important to solve murders or is it important to enforce immigration laws? And sometimes you have to pick between competing priorities. And I think that, reducing the amount of law enforcement resources put into harassing people for possession of, you know, marijuana would de-escalate that tension and make it more likely that we are better able to close real cases of violent and property crime. Sounds like we're on top of that. Well, the priority is better. Well, speaking of, of immigration, have you spoken to, uh, you know, right next door to you there, you've got Aubrey Dunn, who just switched parties, the statewide land commissioner is running for Senate now, and he had a, uh, uh, basically he went and put up no trespassing signs and said the federal government can't use this plot of land along the border that's owned by the state uh, for the wall. Um you know, and I, I think that's kind of. Have you spoken to him about you know since he flipped and all that, and uh, and what do you think of that as an example of kind of states' rights done right in our sort of way? Yeah, I, I've talked to him about his Senate race, um, and did talk reach out to him after he switched over. I know the New Mexico party is running many candidates um, using their newfound ballot access status. I hadn't talked to him about the uh, the thing with the wall. But it does seem like the right way to do it, where it's kind of like when I fly, I don't tend to go through the the scanners. I get the pat down. And it's not because I'm afraid of x-rays or anything. It's because if the government is going to abridge my Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, then they should have have to to do work. Pretty much. Amen, bro. Um, Fuck yeah. And and so, you know, I kind of like the way that uh, Land Commissioner Don is saying, if you want to build a wall across the southern border and interfere with property owners and ranchers, you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to seize the land or buy the land from the state. You're going to have to do something more than just say, I want to. You're going to have to actually put in the effort. And that's a way to 
respectfully resist without getting into an open confrontation, right? Because you're not saying the federal government isn't the federal government. You're saying, you know, we don't have to help you. You can do it yourself. Good luck. <laughs> yes. Well, what about cities who? What about cities who keep wanting federal money, but they want to defy federal law? Well, that's a trade-off you got to make. Um, that is one of the things that, if you look at the Supreme Court cases that address this issue, and I just saw Sheriff Mack at an appearance at ASU about a month ago. Uh, he had that famous case where they tried to get the sheriff to enforce the federal Brady Bill, and he said, I don't want to do that. One of the, the loopholes they have is if you take federal money that requires you to implement a certain program, you're stuck. you got to implement the program. You know, mm-hmm. He who pays the piper calls the tune. So there are going to be a lot of choices for cities and states that want to go a different direction. They're going to have to be willing to say, you know, I'm not going to take – I'm not going to engage in this federal program because they want us to do stuff that we don't want to do. But I think that the more states and municipalities that start doing that, the more experiments we can have where we can see, you know, does something work differently, you know, in New York City versus how it works in Topeka, Kansas. And maybe mm-hmm. maybe there's a lot of different ways to address it, and maybe there are different communities that want to do different things. And, you know, my my goal with regard to the president is to have as little interest in what he does as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't affect my day-to-day life. He probably doesn't affect your day-to-day life. And that's the way it should be. And I think that it if more cities off. would kind of... He pisses me off every day. Every day he pisses <laughs> me off. And about well, one, day have to start... month, one day out of a month, one day out of a month, he makes me feel good. <laughs> you're going to have to start charging him rent for living in your head because you shouldn't let him live there rent-free. Mm-hmm. Hey, man. <laughs> rent-free. <laughs> so, uh, well, that, that sounds like uh, uh, Artie's got a lot of good stuff going on, but of course we do have our, uh, as always, our internal drama is ongoing and we have a convention going up and other things going on, so uh, I did want to ask you, uh, you know, first, are you, I don't know if you actually announced, are you running for re-election and, and what do you think of uh, of that whole race and the way it stands and some of, your, some of the other people who might be running? I am running for re-election. Um, I hope that the delegates will elect me again. The I have not been as focused on that internal race yet. My experience, having done this a couple times, is that most delegates don't really start paying attention to internal races until sometime around May, you know, a couple months out from convention. They aren't that engaged yet. A lot of states are still choosing their delegates. And frankly, there's a lot of work right now to get to those 2,000 candidates to keep fundraising going. Um, We just had our best first quarter of fundraising since 2004, um, which is that's pretty impressive because that also includes the election year of 2016. So we've been doing a lot of work that's kind of outwardly focused. And I'm trying not to be so inwardly focused because there aren't enough of us. You know, the, part of the problem with focusing too much on the internal battles is 
you have to kind of game this out. What do you get if you win, right? What if you get? What do you get if you get rid of one out of seventeen people on a national committee? Well, nothing. You get nothing because now you you well you you slightly change the makeup of a governing board of a political party that's still too small. But if you go out and recruit fifty candidates to run in your state, and they bring in new activists and new donors. And they convince people that we're serious enough and realistic enough that they want to come over and be libertarians. You've done more than if you controlled the entire national committee. You know that the focus really should be on those places where we can make big gains. It's the same as if you go out petitioning for ballot access. For those of you that have done it, if you go out and you get in an argument with somebody about why libertarianism is good when they're trying to tell you it's bad. You're going to burn up 15 minutes of your time that you could have got 20 signatures in if you had just told that person to have a nice day and moved on to the next prospect. You know, you don't have to fight every fight, and that that goes double for internal battles. Thank all who fight that fight. <laughs> right. Well, what would you say to, to those, and for those in other contexts, as this is bubbling up again with the, the, the fight over uh, vice chair and, and whether or not his statements are, are hurting the party in, in terms of making it hard to make that case that we are serious? Um, I know a lot of people who lean towards supporting you and have supported you in the past, but who are frustrated about the situation with Arvin. Um, and so I just, you know, wanted to open it up for you to kind of directly address that. Yeah. The, so pretty much everybody that you're going to work with in this party is going to frustrate you at some point or another. Um, my, my issue with the people that want something to, quote, be done is that there, there is no hierarchy on the national committee. None of us is anyone else's boss. I'm not in charge of the secretary or the treasurer or the vice chair or any of the regional representatives or anybody, really. I'm barely in charge of myself. And so this misconception that you can have one member of the committee, quote, do something about another member of the committee behaving badly or saying something that you don't agree with is just it's not how our party is structured. You know, if the executive director said stuff that you don't like or did something that you don't like, that's the sort of thing where it would make sense. You can call me up and ask me to fire him. I might, I might not, but I at least have the power to do it. With the vice chair, that is a power that's reserved to the delegates. And similar to when the vice presidential nominee said some things that people thought were so beyond the pale that he should be removed from the ticket – The committee is very careful to say, you know, that's a delegate decision. They chose somebody. They may have chosen wrong. They may have been wrong about who they thought they were choosing. But it is is a very strong move and one that should not be taken lightly to override that judgment because we're upset with how that choice has turned out. And I think that, you know, it's – It's not productive. I will tell you that in news interviews that I do and in talking to major donors and all the stuff that is the actual work of being national chair, I get asked about our vice chair pretty much never. Um, And then in official appearances, 
uh, you know, he actually appeared on my behalf for a national sorority conference that I couldn't attend that was more local to the D.C. area. He does great. You know, for official statements, he's solid. What is his job, Nick, if not to create a furor? He did a great job, (laughs) man. He did a great job. (laughs) And so his personal Facebook stuff is not, you know, his messaging is not my messaging, and he doesn't say stuff that I would say. And, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with it. So I don't know if that is the answer you want, but it's the answer you got. <laughs> so that's fair enough. I just wanted your answer. Um, so, do you do you have any any preference or um, inkling about uh, which way that that race might go in New Orleans? Would you object or care if he is reelected? Do you think it would be a problem? Or so, um, and. Andy, you can probably read more into these tea leaves than everybody else because I know you stay up on this. I will be staying neutral in the vice chair's race in New Orleans. Okay. So you can you can explain to everybody else what that means, um, <laughs> but it does it does mean something. Right. Fair enough. Well, that, I mean it's. It, I, mean, I wasn't I, neutral I, the last two times, I guess, is uh, to put the fine right. point on it. Right. That, that is the case. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think personally I, I do I, I do like where you're coming from on the need to be outwardly focused, and I agree the party does get dragged down and the internal fights. I mean, I think that's something most people in the party would agree is probably true. Um, but you know, there's, there's, I think these kind of things do just bubble up from time to time, and, and there will probably be another vote on it. We'll see how that goes. Um, Sometimes people help by publishing one, articles. Do what? I said sometimes people help these things bubble up by publishing articles in news outlets they have access to, or so I've heard. Yeah, you, you you know one of the I want to say this, and I I see this a lot. I I see this a lot with libertarians. I saw this in the Gary Johnson campaign. The 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 campaign. We'll use Gary Johnson as an example. He put out a video, and there would be like 150 comments under the video, and about a third of those comments would be people saying how crappy the video was and why don't you hire somebody that knows what they're doing to make your and, – yeah. and that's the kind of thing that you send to the campaign in a private message. You don't put it out where everybody can see it because most of those people wouldn't even know that the video was crappy if someone didn't bring it to their attention. Mm-hmm. So what's, the, what's, the, what's the percentage of saboteurs within the party, Nick? What's the percentage of Republican saboteurs and – and, and what it's called, it's called Democrat uh, sort of <laughs> infiltrators in the party. You know what I'm saying? What's the percentage? It's hard to say. It's hard to say, but it doesn't matter. Because how you should oh, run a party, how you should focus on getting people elected, how you should strategize finding the right path for maximum results, doesn't matter whether or not the people in the party around you are 
saboteurs or infiltrators or government plants, just incompetent, um, you know, ill-tempered or other. It doesn't matter. You, you can't, the more time you spend focusing on what other people do, the less time you're focused on what you're trying to do. And that, I think, is kind of the capstone on all of the internal drama that happens is much like you shouldn't let the president live rent-free in your head, you probably shouldn't let any, I don't know, senatorial can- candidates from Maryland live rent-free in your head either. You know, if I could, the number of people I've seen post that I had to quit because of this guy or I canceled my donation because of this guy or, you know, I had donors that left because of this guy, it's like how much power are you going to give that guy? Like, he literally controls you, he controls your friends, he controls your donors, he controls your activists. Like, is he, is he some kind of god that I don't know about? You're, you're Good the point. Man, Dick. You're the man. You're the man, Dick. I hope you win that race for mayor, dude. So, I'm so proud of you for running. It's so hard to run. You know what I'm saying? It's a different reality, dude. And to beat the national chair of the Libertarian Party and run for mayor, you are... You are the most amazing badass I've ever met in my life. <laughs> so you got to get out more, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying, dude. Running for mayor and running a national political party is two—that's two different things. It's, uh, if you can handle that just like that, I just don't know anybody else who can do that, man. You're doing great. Good, thank well, you. Thank you. So, 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 Nick, do you think that being the national chair of the Libertarian Party has helped you in any way? So far with your race for mayor? I think it has. I think that obviously it's a municipal race, right? Municipal races are run on being attractive and having people mostly like you, right? Focus on core municipal issues. Don't get down into the weeds on policy. But for the people who look more closely at what the job is, the previous mayor or current mayor has been very partisan. He's gotten into really public pissing matches with both the Republican members of the council and the Republican president, and it's not helping. And I think the experience of keeping a 17-member board that isn't all chosen by a CEO, they're, they're very factional, keeping them together and on task should show those people who care about experience that I should be able to keep a nine member council on task, you know, and focus on how do we solve problems versus can, sitting can I you know, right now the council sits and they, Nick, they throw stuff at each man. other and say, you, you travel all over the United States bringing order to uh, libertarian statewide conventions. I've never seen anything like it. Our Louisiana state convention was the most dysfunctional organization I've ever seen in my life. You walked through the door two years ago and just handled our meeting for us, and you're coming back next week, and we're so happy to have you coming. <laughs> it's huge the support that comes from you when, you when we almost save our level. We love it, and we do appreciate it. Can't wait to see you next weekend. But, but I, think, I think people are going to be looking for a referee, and one of the pitches in this campaign is the idea that if you want a good referee, you ought to pick somebody that doesn't play for either team. You know, if they're wearing a uniform, that's probably not a good sign that you're going to get a fair shake and focus on solutions. That's a sign that they're going to be picking up sides. Or, or a lot of the council right now, they pass blame. 
you know, we have a pension hole like a lot of cities do. And it comes down to these debates over, is it your fault because you wanted the light rail? Is that why we have the pension hole? Or is it your fault because you wanted this other thing? And I'm kind of beyond the whose fault is it? And let's just fix the problem. Let's stop trying to assign blame and start trying to make it so that we don't put a $2.1 billion interest payment on our kids. When is the election? That's a very good question. Probably. So there's an outside chance that it could be in August of this year, but that would require the mayor to quit within the next 18 days. And I don't think he's going to quit within the next 18 days. So probably the election will be on the November election. And then we'll probably have a runoff election in March of 2019 which creates the fun part that if we win, uh, we'll then go immediately into the normal election in August of 2019 and uh, a runoff election in November of 2019. So I may have signed up for four elections in the space of two years. And and we're going to still recruit you to run for president under the Libertarian Party nomination. I, I, I'm nominated today. We're the best we've got, baby. Let's slow, let's slow down on that. 2020. Huh? Let's slow down on that one. Let's let's get through mayor and get through the convention first. Yeah, you got to walk before you can run. That's my long-term goals for you, bro. The 2020. Mm. So, Jeff, do you have a question? Race. Yeah, I was uh, earlier, you kind of got me thinking about the thing about federal responsibilities and um what do you feel about uh, – I, I don't know the exact politics of Phoenix, but I hear a lot about sanctuary cities. If you were mayor, would you inhibit your police force or your sheriff's offices from um, interfering with federal officers trying to enforce immigration laws? And on related immigration, do you feel as though federal immigration laws are unconstitutional at all? Um, so last question first. I don't see any federal authority for immigration enforcement in my reading of um, the Constitution. I don't see it in there. Maybe it's in there. Uh, I haven't seen it. That said, the courts have allowed it, so that that ship has sailed. Um, As far as Phoenix goes, there is already a – the policy has already been crafted by the existing council. It is not a sanctuary city policy, but it's not not a sanctuary city policy. The, the state government is very Republican. And so they passed a law that says that the attorney general can look at anything where it looks like a city is not in compliance with federal law. So we have a policy in Phoenix that, that in many ways acts like a sanctuary city policy, mm-hmm. but it technically isn't. And that's probably where we're stuck for a while. Uh, there isn't a lot of political will to move it one way right. or Here's the, the other. Here's the rub. You've got to demilitarize and defederalize the local governments. So are you going to take the big money bribe to come in there and, and, uh, and federalize your city? No, of course not. No libertarian would ever do that. So that's, your, that's, that's the answer to that question. Yeah, you, you, you know, that's not happening in my city. Because we're not mm-hmm. subject to federalization. That's the opposite of libertarianism. Right. 
Well, the other problem, though, I mean, and, and this is just re- respecting reality because um, you could ignore it, but it goes badly. You know, it's it, the mayor is one member out of nine on the city council. So you don't get to just tell everybody this is how it's going to be. You know, it's his mayor. It's not God. Um, and it's very different from a lot of the East Coast cities. We have a, a city manager that does a lot of the full-time work to run the city itself. So you have to build consensus. You know, if if the votes aren't there to, I don't know, dismantle the light rail, then we're not dismantling the light rail. And it's mm-hmm. counterproductive to try and, you know, there's a Republican council member who I won't mention by name who is constantly on social media demagoguing about how we should get rid of this program or get rid of that program, but he doesn't have the votes. I mean, it's never going to happen. He just uses it, uses it as a way to raise his own profile. And by doing that, he's, I think, doing a disservice to his constituents because he's not focusing on what's actually possible. He's instead focusing on, look at me, look at me, look at how right I am, look at how long they are. He builds a straw man up to fight. That's what all the yep. Republicans did with Obama. They used him as a straw man. You know, in every race, you know, the most basic in Louisiana, most basic city council race, you had idiots talking about how they were against Obama. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's just the same exact thing, you know. It's just, it's pure. We, what, the, what I love with the Libertarian Party is that we, we raise the consciousness. And so people look at these questions a little differently than they always have, or maybe they otherwise would have. And uh, right. you know, and we we got the talent of a Nick Sarwark running for a mayor race while running a national party. We got a chance to bring take over the situation. I think right here now we got to coalesce with all the other run any candidates, whoever they're not the, the big fed. You know, not the big fed. Let's get together. You know, to win something right now. We should all give a lot of money for Sarwark right now. I love what you're doing, dude. <laughs> So, uh, before we wrap up here, one thing I wanted to ask about going into the, the 2018 elections here. Um, you know, in 2016, we got a, a fair bit of, uh, of support. I think maybe even the majority of the votes that, that we got from Jerry Johnson was uh, people who typically voted Republican, but they weren't super socially conservative, and they were anti-Trump. Well, I've never Trumpers, so, you know, some we didn't get, some went to McMullen, but that was a, a, a substantial base of support for the party, I think, was people who left the GOP uh, because of Trump. Um, in 2018, uh, I see a bit of concern that basically that momentum, the Democrats are going to ride that momentum, um, and that a lot of those votes maybe won't go to Libertarians. <laughs> and um, how do we, you know, if, how, how do we position ourselves uh, to kind of break that that dynamic where where there's a default alternative to people who can't stand Trump, or are the Democrats going to you know blow that and then they won't do as well and might not win majorities? But where, where do we fit into this dynamic in terms of building a narrative that'll bring bring in larger numbers of voters here in the midterms? Well, it's different. So you have to recognize that it's different and not fight the last battle. You know, I had a an experience once in court where I went in for a trial and there was a motion in limine to stop me from using a particular closing argument that I had used in an attempted murder case. And I told the judge, I said, one, I don't think this is the right motion and I, I don't think that it should be granted. But two, I have other closing arguments. This isn't the same case. Like I don't have just one argument. 
Um, and that's where we have to be as a party is we can't get locked into the opportunity that the never Trump, never Hillary path was to try and recreate that path. You can't step into the same stream twice. So what you're going to have in 2018, you're going to have the pendulum shifting back away from the Republicans and the party in power towards the Democrats, right? People are just pissed off and they're switching. And that's what you see in a lot of these special elections, which are kind of bellwethers. You're starting to see more of them get won by Democrats or at least the shift in percentage points is, you know, you're talking 15 point swings back towards Democrats from Republicans. Mm -hmm. That's just pure anger, right? That is anger at the president. That's anger at the agenda. That's the, I don't like this. I want something different. And so we need to position ourselves as the something different that actually makes sense. That's honest with the voters that's willing to take stands in support of things like free trade and open immigration and drug legalization and the policies that voters have wanted. You know, one of the things that I think the, the Johnson people got wrong is there, and it's the same thing that Americans elect got wrong. There isn't a political center that looks moderate. The political center in this country is actually a bimodal center where it's people who are both pro-choice and pro-gun. It's people who are pro-legalization and pro-low taxes. And they don't fit in the other parties. So we need to gather that coalition together by bringing them in on whatever issue they feel strongly about and not scaring them away. And then essentially, we, if there's going to be a blue wave in 2018, we try and surf that wave where – we take advantage of the voters being kind of disconnected from the Republican Party, which has gone to be some crazy thing, and also not feeling reconnected with the Democratic Party, and we get them to vote libertarian. We get them to give us a shot to try and express disgust with both sides of the political spectrum and then hold on to as many of them as possible to go into 2020 with a more organized and better funded and stronger political party that will attract the best possible presidential nominee in 2020. You know, people ask me, I got asked today in an interview, who should we be looking for for 2020? I have no idea. I think that's not in our control. I can't make Penn Gillette give up his show or make Drew Carey give up his show. All I can do is try and build up the Libertarian Party into the kind of political vehicle that somebody successful and dynamic that we would want as our nominee would want to run under. Coalesce, coalesce together. You can, you, all you can do is bring us all together. Jesus. Do my best. Like Tupac was black Jesus, you're libertarian Jesus. Come on, baby, let's get this done. <laughs> yes. So, well, Nick, we certainly, we certainly appreciate you coming on tonight um, and, and chatting with us. Um, let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you if they have questions or they want to help out with either your um, campaign for mayor or your campaign for re-election as party chair. Sure. Um, so the first thing is if your listeners are not already Libertarian Party members, they should go to LP.org. They should sign up to be members of the party. And if they have the ability to kind of go out and, and wave that flag – they should sign up to run for office as libertarians in 2018 and be part of that army of candidates. 
if they want to help, if they want to get in touch with me, you can reach me on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash nsarwark. Or on Twitter, it's at nsarwark. Um, it's at nsarwark pretty much everywhere. If they want to find out more about the mayoral campaign, Sarwark for Phoenix, F-O-R, um, is the sarworkforphoenix.com is the webpage for that. And uh, I'm interested in all the support you guys want to give. Wonderful. Um, you really we look hit, forward to you having hit the nail you, on the head. Yeah, we look forward to having well, you, you back on once you are mayor and you can um, <laughs> fit us into your schedule there. Um, hey, Nick, can I, can I, how much would it cost me to get you to stay on the show 12 more minutes? <laughs> to stay on for 12 more minutes? You yeah. want to go to the, to the top of the hour? I can do that. Yeah. I'll do that for you. I just, thank you, my friend. Thank you hey, so Nick, what, I just wanted to... Yeah, go Jeff. Yeah, thank you. I, I just, you really hit the nail on the head. You're talking about the Republican Party has kind of turned into something crazy. And I feel as though you really struck a chord with me with that. I'm a former Republican. Well over 20 years ago, the Republican Party left me. But they've really been hijacked on one side by interventionist or mongering neocons, and on the other side by fundamentalist religious nuts. And I think the Democrat Party. It's not the party of our grandfathers and our fathers anymore. They've gone full more socialist. I think there's a huge opportunity for the Libertarian Party to seize on most people who are not, like you said, we're pro-choice, but we're pro-gun. We are against excessive regulation, but we still believe in fairness. We just want to be able to just kind of, you know, you live your life, I'll live mine. You don't have to be standing there, um, you know, holding the door when two gay people get married, but you don't really go around saying, okay, well, we're just going to hate people because they're gay either. It's kind of like live and let live. I mean, you, you kind of, you know, that really strikes a chord with me. I mean, I'm, I'm very conservative personally, but my political beliefs are a little, you know, a lot more um, middle of the road, like say la vie. If you want to, you know, support the arts and be part of that crowd and, and you want to, um, you know, wear the pink vagina hat and you want to have a march, I'm okay with it. Just leave my guns alone. Don't tell uh, the women in my life uh, how to make personal choices. Don't, if you want to go to church, fine, but don't tell someone they can't or they have to go to your church or they, you know, they can't go to church at all. It's kind of like just live and let live. And I think, especially with Phoenix being the city it is, you might be able to really strike a chord with some of those people who are kind of upset at the the socialist Democrats and the authoritarian Republicans. And I, I think you might be onto something. I wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you. I, I think, you know, one of the things uh, when I was on Glenn Beck's program, I was talking to him about the difference is not conservative or liberal as to whether or not you're a fit in the Libertarian Party. It's the question of do you feel like running somebody else's life or not? You know, it's not what choices you make in your own life. It's do you feel incumbent on yourself to tell somebody else how to live and use the force of government to do that? And there are liberals who want to do that, and there are conservatives who want to do that. And there are liberals and conservatives who are fine with other people living their own lives. And those are the people who find the home of the Libertarian Party. The opportunity that I've seen from talking to people who have become major donors to our party, who previously had been Democrat or Republican, is that neither the Democrats nor the Republicans follow through with their rhetoric anymore. 
basically their whole platform is a lie, and we have the opportunity to provide something authentic where we actually believe in our platform and will follow through on these policies. You know, it used to be the Republican Party was the party of free trade, and the Democratic Party was the party for the little guy. And We're the party Democrats don't support the little guy, and the Republicans don't support free trade anymore. So mm-hmm. the opportunity that's given us is that they're liars. The question is, can we rise to the occasion and stand up as being honest and trustworthy in the political arena where we are more trusted because we're not liars. Are we able to fill that gap? Because Why I think would we run? Why would we run if it wasn't a matter of principle? We can't win, right? right. We can't win. So right. We run. We're doing but, it for some bigger, higher reason. Well, and it, it's, it's one of the things. I think the 2016 campaign saw the opportunity as, you know, what people are looking for is political experience. And I think that was close, but it was not quite where we need to be. I think what people are looking for is authenticity and that you're not a liar. You know, I don't think it's as important what your ideas are as it is that you're not lying about them. And that's part of the reason why, you know, to my mind, at least on a lot of levels, Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders are really the same old white guy. They're they're an old (laughs) white guy who is – telling you uncomfortable truths and does not appear to be in the pocket of anybody and is going to tell you that uncomfortable truth, whether you like it or not. And you may disagree with them, but you're pretty certain that they're not lying. And that's why they were both so popular. And I think if we can tap into that, that's where the, the real path forward is. Hey, man, that is so beautiful. You do a great job. I'm just like, hey, quit blowing smoke up your ass, but I mean, it just, I mean, you're doing great. Uh, what, there was something else I wanted to ask you. What was the most libertarian thing you ever did? Run the party or run for office? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I think the most libertarian thing I ever did was I grew a pot plant in Colorado when it was still federally illegal right after we got it legalized. <laughs> Hell yeah, that's up where it wasn't a very good pot plant. I mean, (laughs) I'm not that green of a thumb, but it was, you know, my way of telling the state that this is a thing that I'm going to do just because I can, not because I have to or because I want to. That's why we used to run to Houston all the time. (laughs) Yes. Well, Nick, once again, I, I want to uh, thank you for coming on and being with us tonight. And um, we, are, we are very happy to have you on. And I think based on what I'm hearing from everybody here on the program, that it's safe to say that we officially endorse you for chair. And if it, and if it helps, we endorse you for mayor of Phoenix. Well, thank you very, Absolutely. very much. Absolutely. And I'm the first one to endorse you for president because I think you're going to win. <laughs> <laughs> one step at a time, guys. One step at a time. If I yeah. if I get to be chair, so, it's unlikely that I'll seek any sort of nomination in 2020 because I should be gaveling that convention rather than running in it. <laughs> you're a good yeah. man for doing it, but I I don't know how you can sit back and just gavel at that. You know what I'm saying? We'd have to overwhelmingly <laughs> applaud you and all into the seat. 
Andy, do you have anything to add? No. You've been quiet. No, I, I uh, did certainly, and I interesting answers to all those questions. Thanks for coming. Yep. So, Thanks for having me, all guys. Right, Nick. Thank you. Have See a great you next evening. Weekend. See all you right. Next weekend, Nicky. Oh. All right. All right. Have all a good right. night and good luck. Thank you. <laughs> so, anyway, anyway, guys, um, as I as I said on the on the message uh, just now, um, I have to get going. So we're going to have to cut this short tonight. Uh, but um, we will pick it up um, at the end of the month when we have Danny Bedwell on as our guest. He's looking forward ah, to being here. That was the one question and, I wanted to ask, Joe. What did he think about Danny Bedwell? Danny Bedwell can win the Mississippi Senate. Yes. He's uh, in so Mississippi, right? Him. Yes, correct. We're going to have Danny Bedwell on, and then we're going to have Laura Ebke in May. So, uh, guys, mm. I want to thank you all for coming on tonight, and I want to thank Nick Sarwark. And I'm sorry thank to cut Andy it short, Craig. but we will – uh, Andy, as Thank always, you, Andy. Andy, it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a program without you. So Amen. Um, Keep around, folks. We love you. So I'll I'll see you guys um, at the end of the month. All right. All right. Good night, gentlemen. Alrighty. Bye. Good night. Hasta la vista, baby.